right. Thank you so much for joining in. If you're in the room, you can have a seat. If you're online, you can engage with us as well. And uh, that was Holland, and this is Holland, right? So she's, she's all ready today. Uh, but what we wanted to do today is, uh, is with, offer a word of thanks to Holland and her husband, Connor. Um, they, she has served here faithfully for several years now. And during COVID, we've had all kinds of transitions, and sometimes people leave, and uh, we don't get to say goodbye. We don't get to honor them in the way that we'd like to, but we thought today would be a chance to say goodbye to Holland, because she and her husband and little ones here uh, will be moving to Southern California in a couple of weeks. And so I just wanted to give us, us as a church a chance to say thank you to her. So if you just give, them or give her a hand and say thanks for your time here. Thank you. How long have you been here now? Four and a half years. And you're going to Southern California for what? Uh, my husband is in the Air Force, so yeah. yeah. And guys, move. How long will you be there? Who knows? Till you come back, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> we Till they wish. tell us. Uh, she's been so faithful and being, you know, not just in uh, leading from the stage, but she's a servant behind the scenes, and she's helped our women's ministry, children's ministry, uh, and being engaged in music and helping kids and helping with choir and making choir work. So she's uh, she's a PK, so she has a special place in my heart <laughs> as well. So we just wanted to give a chance today to say thank you to her and then her husband, of course, for his faithful service, especially now that he gets to stay home with these two oh, yeah. lovelies, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell us their names. Uh, Ezra, he's two, and Emmeline is six months. Oh, wow. So, so yeah. whoosh, right there together. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> fun. Cool. Yeah, I bet it is a lot of fun. So uh, anyway, she said that we could be praying for her because the military housing that they hope to get is not quite available because COVID has a backlog of housing. And so they're not sure when they're actually going to be able to have that. So uh, other than just saying thanks to her today, I asked her to come and she's going to read our scripture reading for the day. So if you have a Bible, you can turn it to Nehemiah chapter one, and she's going to read our scripture reading and then we'll jump in today. So go ahead. Thank you. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands... Then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. 
They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this ser your servant and to the prayer of your servants, who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Thank you, Hala. And then would you guys say thanks for her to me, to her, with me as well? Thank you. Appreciate that a lot. Uh, we may not be able to sing today, but there's great power in the reading of God's word, right? And we get to experience that together. And so I'm just so grateful to you and for being here today. And so we all know, I'm just going to say what the obvious, okay? Let's start there. Uh, we all live in a time of unprecedented chaos. That's where we're at right now. Uncertainty, upheaval, fear, frustration, confusion, divisiveness, like most of us have never experienced in our lifetimes. We're in the middle of that. We look around, and I'm going to use this metaphor, at the rubble around us, and maybe the rubble of our lives, and we all desire something to come from this that would be good, don't we? We all desire that. And I hope if you didn't get a chance to watch the video that Kim and I did this week, that you'd just take a peek at that this afternoon as we talk about through the COVID-19 logjam that God has beauty that he wants to bring to us into the world that we're in. So would you just all agree that we just need a little hope? Would you all agree that we need a little hope? Well, I do, and it's worth applauding for because we do need that. Uh, and so we're going to begin the series today called, called Rise Up, A Time to Rebuild. Now, I've told you several times we've had to, had to pivot in our thoughts. We actually pivoted in the series. This one wasn't planned at all. Uh, but as I was looking forward into the future, this is like seven weeks ago, eight weeks ago, I was looking into the future, right? And I thought the future would be some releasing of the restrictions. The future would be some hope. The future would be some good news. And we'd be looking around at some of the rubble of the last several months that we've been through the COVID-19 logjam, and we'd be all going, I want to move forward. I want to build something from this. And I thought that's exactly where we would be, but that's not exactly where we are, right? It seems like we're in a place that where people have increased discouragement instead of increased hope. They have increased uncertainty instead of increased confidence. This is not what we expected when we started this. We thought it would be just a few weeks, and now it's a few months, and now who knows how long it's actually going to go on. So that means that in order for this to be the series that God wants it to be, I believe, instead of it being a proactive series about how we can look around and then we can see the rubble and then we can listen to him and we can rise up and rebuild, it's a prescriptive series instead of a proactive series. It's so that we can know what we will do when that time comes when there is a release and we get to see the opportunity to rebuild. But I would say it's even more than that. It's a preparation series. It's for us to know how we can be prepared, how we can know God, how we can be in relationship with him, all as we look at a guy named Nehemiah. Nehemiah in the Old Testament, and many of you have heard sermons or messages on Nehemiah throughout your church life or your history, but when we look at Nehemiah, it begs us to answer this question, how do you build a life or how do you build again when life is in disarray or disrepair? And so what we're going to do throughout this series is we're going to look at principles that Nehemiah exercised, that he engaged in, that allowed him to be ready and then to move forward to rebuild the walls, as we're going to talk about, around 
Jerusalem. But before that, I just want to tell you I had some thoughts. And I just want to give this thought today as just a way to plant a seed. Maybe it's a way to ask God for this to be true in us. So as I survey the landscape, as I look around at the landscape that we have, I believe that what we need in our culture, in our world right now, is a spiritual awakening. I believe that. And from your murmur, I think that you would say you believe the same thing. We need a revival. We need an awakening in some way. Now, from what I remember when I took my college and then my seminary classes about church history, is what I remember is that revivals or awakenings or renewals happened when God's people got serious about God and their own condition. When they got serious about God and their own condition, when people got serious about the condition of their hearts, when they turned back to him, when they repented from the ways where they had moved away from him, God, in his sovereignty, not by, not by um, that he had to do this, but by his sovereignty, he chose on occasion when people would turn back to him to pour out his Holy Spirit in ways that he hadn't been pouring out his Holy Spirit on a group of people. And there was a revival and there was awakening that went across the land. And so what I wanted to ask as I was thinking about that, as I wanted to ask you, and I'm asking me this question, who knows? Who knows if that's what God wants to do right here? Right here in Grass Valley, not somewhere else, not down in Sacramento, not on the other side of the you know, United States, not in another country. But what if he wanted to do that right here in Grass Valley, right here in us? What if he wanted to use us to renew his people and call his people back to him? It's possible, folks. It's possible in God's sovereignty that he could do that. And I believe, therefore, that as we go through this series in Nehemiah, that it has the potential to be not just impactful for us personally, but also corporately together and maybe even community-wide and then statewide. And I don't know what God wants to do, but I want to be with him when he does it. But hear me on this. Revival is always God's part. I cannot make revival happen. My part is to be ready when he wants to blow his winds of revival. Now, a great quote I want to read to you from G Pastor G. Campbell Morgan. And so this is what he says. He says, we cannot organize revival. Now, many of you might have grown up in traditions where there would be revival meetings, right? And so you would organize a meeting and with the desire that meeting would bring revival. And so he's saying, we can't organize it. It's not in our power to do that. But here's what we can do. We can set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon his people again. And that's what I want to do. I want to have the sails open and ready for when God blows his wind that we can catch the wind from heaven. So the series is all about opening our sails so we can be ready for what God wants to do and how he might want to work in us corporately, and then we can take it down individually of what we can do and our relationship with him. So let's let me set the table a little bit for the series. Uh, let's look at the theme verse there from uh, uh, Nehemiah 2.18. And so this is what we'll look at next week, by the way. We'll be here, and actually similar words in verse 20 as well. Uh, but this is what Nehemiah says. He's come. So this is the idea. He's come to Jerusalem, and he's moving in. He's calling the people to rebuild the walls. And so he's just giving them the call. He's giving them the vision and the mission. And this is the response of the people. They said, well, let us rise up and build. 
So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And that's what we're talking about in this series. We can say, let us rebuild, but we're also saying to God, we want to be strong. And so the series is prescriptive in that way. It's helping us to know what to do before him. So let's talk about walls for just a minute. So walls, in that day, they were built around a city. Uh, and so the, one of the purposes of the walls was for protection. And so you would you know, be inside your wall, you would go out in the daytime, and you'd take care of your agricultural duties or whatever it was that you needed to do for commerce, and then you would come back in, and you'd close up the gates at night, and it was for protection. But it also served as security, because you knew that when you were inside the walls, then you could rest, you could breathe, you could trust that you were going to be safe while you're there. But also, walls served as the place where community happened. And so even though they were meant to keep people out, they also were kept, meant to keep people in. And so they became the place where the community would gather, especially at the gates. And that the gates would be the place where uh, city business was done. That the gate would be the place where they would come together and that they would be able then to experience, they would be able to, um, sorry, uh, that they would be able to um, do business and that they would have the business meetings that went on there. And so that's the kinds of things that actually happened there. And so that's what a wall was there for. And as we're going to see, the walls of Jerusalem, they've been decimated, okay? We're going to talk about how that actually happened and what went on there. And they needed to be repaired, but the task was too daunting for the people who were there. It was beyond their skill, capability, and resources. So now, here we go. I want to excite you with a little church history, okay? So we're going to go through a little history lesson here so we can understand what was going on here, a little bit of history about the nation of Israel. So the nation of Israel was one kingdom, 12 tribes. After Solomon died, there was a split. There was a northern tribe, 10 tri a northern kingdom, 10 tribes, and there was a southern kingdom, two tribes. What happens is, is that the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom both had their on-off switches with God. And so they would worship God, and they would worship idols. They'd worship God, and they worshiped idols. The northern kingdom never did have a king or a ruler that led them to worship God full on. They were always compromising. Well, God prophesied, told through Jeremiah and other prophets, that if they kept this up, there would be a price to pay. And so finally, in 597 BC, God allowed the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar to, well, let's see, we're jumped ahead in timeline there. In 722 BC, God allowed the, the Assyrians to come against his people, and they obliterated the 10 northern tribes. Now, they uh, killed them, and then those who were left alive would be kind of assimilated into the other cultures and nations around them. Some of them even went down into the southern kingdom and became part of that. Then beginning in 597 BC, this is where we are now, God allowed the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. You guys heard of him? Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar. He allowed him to come into the southern kingdom um, because like their northern brothers and sisters, they were still compromising on worship to God. They were still worshiping in idols. So 597, they started coming in. They started attacking the southern kingdom. They started a series of deportations where they would take you know, the prime the best people from Jerusalem, they take them into their kingdom so that they could serve them in some way. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all those kinds of people were part of this deportation. Then finally, in 587 BC, they had a campaign against Jerusalem that they would overthrow them. And then what happened in the process is they came, at, you know, attacked Jerusalem. In the, and in the process, they destroyed the temple. This is Solomon's temple, the temple of all glory. They, they destroyed that and burned it. 
They destroyed the walls and burned them, and they took the rest of the people who were worth any value with them. Thousands of people they took with them back to their country so that they could serve him. And so basically, uh, they left with the bright, the best and the brightest, and they left Jerusalem, and therefore the nation of Israel, in a heap of burning ruins. Now, you might want to write this down, 2 Kings 25, 12. 2 Kings 25, 12 talks about what has happened here, and it says that those who were left were the poorest of the poor, the weakest of the weak. That's who they left behind. Basically, they left everyone who behind who would not make a good slave. And so that's who was left in Jerusalem, and so the, everything has been destroyed, they have no ability, no wherewithal to be able to you know, make a difference. And so they basically moved outside of town, and they're living out in places where they could be protected because, you know, caves and other places like that, so, because they knew they couldn't be in the city. All hope was gone. So after a while, a new superpower comes to play, and they are known as the Persians. The Persians. We got the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and now the Persians that have been afflicting God's people. But the Persians come in, and they have an entire different tactic that the Babylonians had. They had an entirely different way that they treated the, com- the countries that they overcame. So here's what the Babylonians did. The Babylonians would come into a country or a city, and they would take captive, and they would take the best back to them because they wanted to have them serve them as their slave. But what the Persians did, they said, no, that's not, that's not a good strategy at all, uh, because really what we need is we need more income. And so they would leave the best and the brightest where they were so that they could you know, raise their crops, so that they could do commerce, so that they could engage in business, so that they could tax them. Because that's how they had their wealth, and that's how they got, got the way, things that they needed through taxation. Kind of sounds like where we live today, right? So that's the way it worked. We won't go there. But they taxed them, and that's what they wanted them to do, was to have uh, the best way that they could do that. So let me just show you a little bit about what happens now. The Persians say, hey, we want you to go home. We want you to have your own religion. That's okay. Uh, we'll have ours. You have yours. It's okay if we do that. And so they started this return to Jerusalem. So let me just walk through the returned to Jerusalem and what happened. So in 538 BC, Zerubbabel, he took Zerubbabel. There we go. 538 BC, Zerubbabel left with about 40,000 people and he went to Jerusalem. And the purpose of his trip was to rebuild the temple because they thought we need a place to worship God. So they went there, and their job was to rebuild the temple. And they, did, they finished that in about 515 BC. But they didn't rebuild the walls, and the people really never did come back. And so the temple kind of sat there as kind of an empty shell. And then the second group under Ezra, so if you want to read about this, you can read, we can read out both in Ezra, uh, in 458 BC. So we have 458 BC now. Ezra he takes a group of people. He's allowed to leave. He has this mission. They go back to Jerusalem, and their job was to rebuild the people. So rebuild the temple, rebuild the people. And they came back in a way to call the people back to God with hopes that as they come back to God, then they would be able to be stronger and be able to live against the oppression they were in. And then finally, the last group to go back was Nehemiah, and he took several thousand people with him, and they went and they followed um, 
in 445 BC, they went back and their job was to rebuild the wall. So we got three different groups going back. First group to rebuild the temple, second group to rebuild the people, and the third group, group to rebuild the walls. And so that's where we find ourselves today. That's where, what's going on. So with that, I know you're all excited about history, right? Yeah, so with that in mind, what I want to do is I want to show you some things from Nehemiah chapter 1. So we begin with verse 1 through 3. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. You might underline that if you have a Bible or you have your notes. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Wow. So they came back with a very bleak report. And so one of the things that makes you wonder is, if, this, if, if everyone knew this, then why didn't Nehemiah go sooner? back to Jerusalem to take care of this. And I would just say it's because they didn't have, you know, 24-7 news channel. And it always shows all the bad news that you can look at. And so they didn't really know possibly what was going on. They knew that the temple had been rebuilt. They knew the, temple, the people had been called back to God. And they may not have been able to know completely what was going on. That's one idea of why he might not have gone. The second idea would be mainly what we're going to talk about in just a little bit. Sometimes God calls us at different times. Sometimes it's bad for a long time, and then all of a sudden God speaks and raises up someone to come in and make a difference. So here's some things we know. We know that Cyrus is no longer the king, but now the king is called Artaxerxes. We know that Nehemiah had a high position in uh, Artaxerxes, let's just call it his cabinet, and so uh, he was known as the cup bearer, which means he was the one that tasted the food and the wine the king ate or drank before he did to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. Now, in some way, this is a dream job, right? You got to eat the best in the land. You got to drink the best in the land. But the way you got rid of a king was you poisoned them. And so there was all, you know, kings could come and go. And so the reason they have a cup bearers, that's happened. So you never knew when you were going to be the one who actually got the poison. But what the idea is, is that he had a good relationship with Artaxerxes, which is going to come in handy as we look at him next week. If you wanted to see Artaxerxes, you had to go through Nehemiah to actually get to him. And so what we know, we know that about him. But we also know that Nehemiah's brother comes back with this bad news. Now, we don't know that he was his... Um, actual brother. He could have just been brother in the tribe. So it's something like that. We're not sure exactly who he was when he came back, but he had this negative report and about the negative conditions that the people were living in. So let's talk now about how Nehemiah responded to this news that I think would be good for all of us to think about as we hear the news in our world today. What we're going to do is we're going to look at five elements of Nehemiah's response that I want us to think about raising up our sails to see if God wants to blow his wind in us. The first is this, five keys to restoration and renewal, and this is central to Nehemiah's life. Let my heart be derailed by God. Let my heart be derailed by God. And I just know this is dangerous territory here as we talk about this. Let my heart be derailed by God. So this is what Nehemiah wrote in verse, chapter 1, verse 4. Um, he says this. He says, when I heard these things, the report, I sat down. So it, it, like it was a gut punch to him. And so he 
sat down. He may have even fell down in some way and wept. So um, I don't know if their culture was similar to our culture, but in our culture, you know, guys have an aversion to seeing, other, letting other people see them cry. And, but he was not afraid to weep tears for the condition of the people. He says, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I'm going to come back and talk about that in just a little bit. But first of all, I want to talk about this idea of, how, of a derailed heart. A derailed heart. So when I was thinking about this week, and the first person that came to my mind when I wanted to talk about a derailed heart was a woman in our church. Her name is Joy Porter. And so what I want to do is talk a little bit about her story. Joy went a few years ago on one of our trips to Uganda and to be with the orphans that we care for there, to do leadership development and to help us plant churches. And she had an experience while she was there that literally did derail her heart in many ways. So let's just look at a couple of pictures here. This is more recent as she's been there. And so she's recently been invited to come, and this is ProLine Film Academy, and come in and to Kampala and teach Africans how to do photography. That's her job in video, how to be able to do that well. She's been invited back to teach, been invited back many times to go and help them. But it's all because her heart has been derailed in such a way that she wants to help the people there in so many ways. And one of the people that she really loves is a boy by the name of Praise. And if you know our system with Ugandans is that we had uh, orphans and we had 67 orphans and several people in our church would say, I want to adopt this orphan and I would become the sponsor and I would give and I would pray and I would support in many ways. And so Praise ended up being Joy and Kenny's Ugandan son. And you can see here, he's grown up now. This is the relationship that they have. And she's helped him to develop his business. And she's helped him to be self-sustaining. And he has his own photography business that he does following in the footsteps of his, quote-unquote, mom. And so I'm going to look at this third picture because it shows the unity that's happened in the relationship um, between joy and praise, between us and the people in Africa. I just think it's a vision of what God wants to see everywhere. And I want to leave that up a little bit while I tell, or read some of her words. I wish I could have had her here today. It just didn't work out. Uh, but this is what she wrote me. She said, I started my journey in Uganda with uncontrollable tears, wondering how I was going to make it for two weeks to end it. Let's start the story here. Here's a segment. It says, on my first trip to Uganda, it was our second night in Africa where I woke up in tears. And she said the tears were the ugly kind. Early in the morning hours while everyone else was sleeping. And here's why she was crying. Okay, this is very vulnerable. She asked herself, how on earth am I going to be able to make it another two weeks here? That's why she was crying. I'm stuck in Uganda with no way home. I'm overwhelmed by the poverty that I see, and it's literally ripping my heart apart. And she was crying because she wanted to know what difference could I make. And then she writes, it was in that dark moment that the faces of my prayer partners, and so when we take missions trips to Uganda, we invite people to have partners back home who are praying for them while they're away. And so she's thinking right now of the people who are praying for her. My prayer partners surfaced in my heart of aching, and it turned to comfort, and I felt the presence of God leading me from fear into trust. 
I started my journey in Uganda with uncontrollable tears, wondering how I was going to be able to make it for two weeks, to ending my journey in tears, wondering how I could ever leave. Jesus ignited a fire in me that I cannot explain. After my first trip to Uganda, I sat at the airport in Entebbe, waiting for a return flight home, and I realized I was leaving part of my heart with my Ugandan family, and I knew that one day I would return. Since that first trip in 2017, I've been there six times and can't wait for our two countries to reopen so I can return again. So that's a story of a heart that got derailed simply because someone was in the right place and God spoke and tugged at her heart in a huge way. And folks, I just think that one thing that God might want to do in this series with all of us is he might want to get us to come to a place where we can just slow down a little bit Slow down a little bit and answer the question, what breaks my heart? What breaks my heart? You might start with what breaks the heart of God. And we can look around and we're seeing uh, all kinds of protests and marches against racial injustice. That breaks God's heart. Racial injustice does. Uh, we might want to look around and we see the plight of the homeless. And we, we realize that in the plight of the homeless that there's opportunities. And it breaks God's heart that people don't care for people. And we look around at the environment and the care for the environment. And realize there are th things about the way that we treat the environment. That breaks God's heart. We look about the way that we treat life. The way that we throw lives away. That breaks God's heart. And so you just might want to ask yourself that question, what breaks God's heart? And then what would he want me to do about it? There's something he wants to break in my heart about the things that I see. And Nehemiah found his heart derailed over the news that all this time that he's living in luxury there in the king's palace, all this time that he's there, his people were living in poverty. The walls were still not rebuilt. And so his response at that moment was to press into God. His first response was not to stand up and go take action, but his first response was to press in to God. And so, folks, just know, anytime there's pressure, we press into something, and Nehemiah is showing us that the thing we want to press into is we press into our relationship with God. Now, I'm going to go back to this verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, and I'm going to talk a little bit about how he pressed into God. If we look at that, it says here, it says, for some days, now we don't know exactly how long this was, but for some days, he's in this posture of brokenness over what's happened to his people. He says, first, I mourned. This means that he's expressing his sadness to God. He's expressing his sadness to God. And I just want to encourage you, there's great help when we are be able to release the grief we have outwardly to God, and I'll just say this to other people as well, that they can hold us and they can empathize with us and help us to understand that. So he was not afraid to mourn, and it says he's fasted there. In this day, fasting was doing without food, something that some of us know nothing about. Um, and so he called them to, he called himself to fast. So that means he did without food so that he could hear where God, and he prayed he prayed before the God of heaven. So he's mourning to God, he's fasting to God, and he's praying to God. He's pressing into God because he sees this need. His heart's been derailed, and he says, God, what do you want me to do? And then the next thing he does is he prays. That's what God wanted him to do first, and God wanted him to pray. And that's what I want to do is wrap up a little bit by looking at this whole idea of prayer. But I want to read this quote from Oswald Chambers first, and he talks about prayer in a way that is so challenging. 
He says, we tend to use prayer as a last resort. You know, like, oh my gosh, does it come to this? We have to pray. Kind of last resort kind of thing. But God wants it to be our first line of defense. So instead of it being our last resort, God wants our, it to be our first response. So for a first responder, he wants it to be in prayer. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. Most of us would prefer, however, to spend our time doing something that will get immediate results, right? I want to feel good. I want to make a difference. I want to see results in this way. We don't want to wait. That's a key thing. We don't want to wait for God to resolve matters in his good time because his idea of good time is seldom in sync with ours. Have you found that to be true? So we don't want to wait. We just want to see the need and take action and make a difference. Stand up. Do what's right. Instead, God says, I want you to pray. Prayer does not equip us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. So what we need to realize is that we talk about renewals, we talk about restoration, we talk about rebelling. It's going to take time. I wish it weren't so. Because we could line up and we could fix things and we could make things different, but what God wants us to do is he wants us to wait with him because there's something he wants to happen inside of us when we wait with him. Now, what we're going to see when we open up the chapter two next week is that Nehemiah actually spent four months in prayer. Have you ever prayed for something for four months? Solid. Four months that your heart was breaking and you're wondering what to do. He prayed for four solid months before he took action. So I'm just going to take just a few minutes. I'm going to walk through the rest of his prayer and give you some highlights about the way he prayed. The first way we pray is we acknowledge the greatness of God. We acknowledge the greatness of God. Have you guys ever used the Acts way of praying? You know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Well, that's how he began his prayer is through adoration. And so he acknowledges God's greatness. Now, God wants us to acknowledge his greatness. Now, why is that? Is it because God in, is insecure and he wants us to build him up and tell him how great he is? No, not in any way. It's because God knows I'm human and I need to see him as great as he actually is. Look at what it says in Nehemiah 1, 5 through 6. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, and here's his prayer about how awesome God is, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he says, let your ear be attentive. Have you ever noticed how many times in Psalms that it says, I cried out to you and you heard me? I cried out to you and you heard me. This is, this is relationship. He's saying, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer. Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. So basically, God's saying, uh, Nehemiah is saying, I, I'm reminding myself who God is. So the first thing he said, God is great and awesome. Great and awesome is the Lord our God. And he's reminding himself of everything that God is. The second thing he reminds himself is that God has made covenant. That God has made covenant. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. So he's made promises. And the third thing he's reminding himself is that God is a God of hesed love. We talked about that a lot, that God is a God of unfailing love and mercy. And he's just reminding himself when he's in this place where it looks like God has abandoned them and abandoned the people, that God's still at work. He has unfailing love and mercy. Second part of prayer is this. He expressed genuine confession to God. So if they had the Acts model, Acts, confession. Express genuine confession to God. So here's how it happens. This is why we begin with adoration, okay? Oftentimes, when I see how great God is, I see myself for who I am. Until I see how great God is, I may have a 
puffed up view of who I am. But when I see how great God is, it reminds me of my sin and my humanity and my need for him. This is what it says in verse 6b. I confess the sins we Israelites, so he begins with everybody, okay, whoa, we've got the whole group here. Confess the sin we Israelites, including myself, so he's part of that, and my father's family have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. So he's saying, hey, we're not perfect, we've blown it, and he's taking responsibility here by confessing the sin to God. This is one of the things I love about praying with uh, the prayer groups that meet occasionally here in Nevada County, is every time that we get together, we begin with corporate confession and confessing our sin, and we get down to personal confession, coming before him, and that's one of the keys to filling the sails of our life. Number three, third element of prayer is to remember the promises of God. The promises of God. I'm going to read verses 8 through 10. You're going to see the promise here. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. There's the first promise. They're living in the reality of that promise. They're living there right now. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But here's the second promise. And what you want to do is you want to read through Jeremiah at the times when Jeremiah was giving the first part, but Jeremiah also gave the second part. He talks about the second part. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are the farthest, at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great and your mighty hand. So he's just saying there, he's saying, God, you promised that we're living in the reality, but we're claiming the other promise. We're claiming the promise of what you want to do and how you want to set us free. And he's reminding himself of that as he looks forward to what God's called him to do. And then the last thing is this. Ask for provision from God. So we have acts, adoration, confession. We have thanksgiving, which would be you know thanking God for his promises. And we have now supplication. Ask God for provision. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. So we look at that, and this is what it says in verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man as he moves in to talk next week to Artaxerxes, the king, and asking him if he will help in the um, task that he's been called to. So here's why. Here's why this is so important. Prayer helps us get ready for what God is calling us to do because it's in prayer that I develop intimacy and relationship with God. You know, I, we, can, we can get all caught up and, yes, I'm going to go out and I'm going to take care of this cause. And we can do it on our own. And we can do it without him. But God says, I want you to do it with me. And right now is a time of preparation so that when I do call you, you're ready as I blow the wind into your sails to lead you forward into the calling I've given you, the derailment I place in your heart. And I love this idea of intimacy. Timothy Keller says it this way. He says, prayer is both conversation and encounter with God. We must know the awe of praising his glory, adoration. We must know the intimacy of finding his grace, confession. And we must know the struggle of asking his help, all of which can lead us to know the spiritual reality of his presence. So he's saying it's in the tension of prayer when I can't stand it anymore, what's going on around me, but in that relationship that I get to know him and I get prepared for what he's calling me to do. Let's bow our heads and pray.
So the bottom line is that prayer connects us with God and focuses our attention and affection on his person, purpose, and provision, praying with desperation. God, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to be here in church and to hear from you. I thank you for the opportunity people have to sit right now online and to receive from you. And I pray that we will stay engaged for the next couple of minutes as we be able to hear from you, God. I just think there's some people either here or online that have already known their soul that you've derailed them in some way and they've not responded. Uh, fear, there's um, all kinds of reasons why we wouldn't respond. But I pray today that we would have courage. It's not that we would stand up and go move to another country today or that we'd quit our jobs and we would take on another uh, ministry or some way to serve in an unpaid fashion. But I just want to say today that our, our call today is to come before you in prayer. And maybe your heart's not derailed, and I think that's the first prayer we could pray. Is God, show me what breaks your heart and show me how I can be engaged. Break my heart for what breaks yours. How can I engage there, God? And once again, it comes from relationships. So would we be willing to spend time with him to acknowledge his greatness? Spend time with him so that we see ourselves as we are and confess our brokenness. Confess our sin. We'd be willing to focus and remind ourselves of his promises. There's so many promises in God's word that are right for us, and they give us courage in the face of opposition. And then would we be willing to ask him to supply what we need to do what he's calling us to do? God, I thank you. I thank you for that for our church and for everyone here and everyone watching online. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.